0: In December 2019, a homeless woman gave birth to twins outside Cambridge University's wealthiest college, Trinity. A sadly ironic image representing a vast disparity between Cambridge's richest and poorest citizens, deprivation overshadowed by the city's reputation. Due partly to an influx of large, fast-growing companies in the area, Cambridge has become one of the least affordable places to live in the UK, the average cost of a house amounts to 13 times more than the city's median annual salary. As a result, many people are forced to live outside the city and commute to work, and homelessness has continued to increase year on year. Support services providing emergency accommodation are overwhelmed. I'm Alison Taylor, and this is Cambridge in pursuit of equality. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Martin, the chief executive of YMCA Trinity, and Gavin Howard, director of the Howard Group and member of the Bessem in Cambridge charity to discuss what could be done to address homelessness and prevent vulnerable people falling into poverty. Jonathan, firstly, I'd like to turn to you, please. Has poverty and homelessness always been a problem in Cambridge and why is it growing?
1: I think one of the issues is, is that homelessness is an incredibly complex item. It's made up of lots of different moving parts. And amongst those are poverty of opportunity and uh, financial poverty. And I think that what we see is that in a city that is as unequal as Cambridge, We see a disproportionate number of people who have fallen outside of the opportunities that most people would get, but also do not have the financial resources to get and maintain a home. And so, yeah, we have seen higher levels in the city than than you would expect.
0: Turning to you, Gavin... Jonathan talks about people who've fallen outside of the opportunity. Can you tell me about some of the circumstances, maybe of some of the people living in poverty, that you see through your charity work in Cambridge? How did they come to be living in these circumstances?
2: Uh, A story I often tell is we had a guy from our church, He, he was a missionary in Tajikistan, and he came back to Cambridge for Christmas, and he went out with one of our teams in the east of the city to deliver Christmas boxes, Christmas hampers, And he came across uh, somebody living in a flat with just a mattress. And so he was really astonished to find people living in the same situation as he would find in Tajikistan uh, in the city he he was sent out from. Uh, So it can happen very quickly. It can happen. Things can fall apart before you know it.
0: You're talking about adults who have, have fallen out of opportunity. What about the families, the children who are born into those situations? Do you see much of that? Oh, greatly. It's sometimes
2: it's, it's hard to deal with sometimes because you, you're going to households where the people themselves are choosing to have a really good telly, but the children don't have beds and the children don't have bedding. Um, it's really hard because you've got people who want the best for themselves. They, they, they want the things that they see everybody else having at the expense of the things that everybody should have. And how the city works together to enable them to have both those choices um, is really important because they they just want to see they want to be the same as everybody else. They don't have the means to, but they'll do the thing that looks best, not the thing that is best. We don't want to see children in those situations. And it's heartbreaking when we see that.
0: Do you think the situation in Cambridge is very different to other cities around the UK?
2: I think the the difference is much more stark because Cambridge has inadvertently become a pawn in a global game of finance. You know, there's so much money pouring into Cambridge. and You've got overseas families who are buying properties in Cambridge just like that.
0: There are many reasons why we see house prices rising across Cambridgeshire. According to government figures, as of October 2019, there were 2,829 long-term vacant houses across the county, which is in large part due to investment purchases. This is what Julie Spence, Lord Lieutenant of Cambridgeshire, had to say about
3: it. I think that the the number of empty houses is probably one of those facts that passes many people by, and I don't think people realise if there were more people who truly understood, there'd be much more of a drive to ensure that people who didn't have homes had homes. And I'm sure there are arrangements and ways to manage our housing stock that, that would enable that to happen. I'm very aware of lots of people who work with the homeless. I'm aware of the amazing project that's just happened with Alia Homes and some local businesses who have created pods for homeless people to live in on Newmarket Road. Which is an amazing concept. But if there is already houses there, why aren't we using them? And I think that's a big question we have to ask as a city.
2: You know, if we were in a country like Denmark, which doesn't allow non-Danes to own property, everything would be squished. Everything won't be so volatile. But we allow us to be a part of a global game. But Cambridge is a pawn in a global game, and I I don't necessarily think it's winning.
0: Kevin, do you think that the pandemic has had much impact on poverty in Cambridge? And if so, what sort of impact do you think it's had?
2: I, I, for some of the situations I've been looking at and Jonathan's been experienced for years, I can't imagine things have got worse than that because I don't. we've been in situations where it couldn't be worse. So I'm sure that the, the volumes are, are bigger. I'm sure there's more families like that. I'm sure there's more individuals in those situations.
0: In your experience, Jonathan, is that the case? I know we heard stories about homeless people during lockdown being housed and these sorts of things. How has the situation changed in the last year or so?
1: So I I think there's been two major changes. The first one is that there's no question that at the beginning of the, the lockdown period in March, a huge effort was put in by central government, local government here in the city as well as lots of agencies, to get people off the streets to prevent rough sleeping. And I think that that was a reflection of the fact that, one, COVID was, you know, a dangerous virus, particularly to people who had health issues, and so it it was trying to prevent the spread of the virus. Also, lots of the support around people who were street homeless also shut down. And so it was people being very vulnerable, even more vulnerable than they they would normally. And there's no question that initially, lots and lots of people were housed in lots of different places, uh, university halls of residence, uh, hotels in the city. But over time, that support has ebbed away, the the money for it has gone, and people are returning to the streets. That is one item of the lockdown. I think the second point, picking up on what Gavin was saying, is what we're seeing is that there's no question that unemployment is climbing. And the areas in which unemployment are climbing are retail, hospitality, which are traditionally jobs which are lower paid and also primarily young people. And so what we're experiencing is higher levels of unemployment amongst young people because they've been made redundant or they're zero-hours contracts, they're just not getting any hours on. And of course, that adds to the problems because they have less income uh, uh, and are getting into financial trouble more quickly. I think it's also worth picking up on something Gavin said, which is it's really interesting. And one of the questions I get asked a lot is, is like, what does your average homeless person look like? What's their story? And I think that in my experience, part of our problem is there is not one story. There are a multitude of different stories. We know of young people where there's been a family breakdown and in essence, everybody's been made homeless. Uh, we've heard of where young people have been thrown out of home. They literally have nothing. But as well as that, we have to reflect on, on the fact that you know, a decent proportion of people who are street homeless will have spent time in a uniform service, whether it's the military or, or something else a huge amount of the people uh, that are street homeless may have issues with their mental health. They may have addiction issues. And sometimes it's unclear whether the street homelessness has created the addiction or whether the addiction has created the street homelessness. And I I think that's a bit of a challenge. So I always try and rebuff and say to people, you know, actually, the vast majority of people in this country are probably just a few pay packets away from not being able to sustain their housing. And if something happens like a redundancy, the whole house of cards falls in on them. And suddenly, everything is unaffordable.
0: Christine Osborne, who organises the community fridge at Arbury, told us how job insecurity has resulted in people falling out of employment into situations where they require food aid.
3: There was a gentleman that came to the community fridge quite early on. He had moved to Cambridge two weeks before lockdown for a job and the job didn't start.
0: There's a lot of difficulty for people who didn't quite fall into the right category to get the financial support that was on offer. I mean, those who then get the financial support like Universal Credit still are struggling. I mean, it's just not enough. Unfortunately, most people we've spoken to know somebody in a similar situation and have a story to tell us. Problems like this are only too common around Cambridge. Jonathan, you worked with an individual whose story highlights some of the less well-known obstacles faced by people who are coming from a troubled past. This person, I think you said, found a steady job and then was still unable to find a home in the area. Tell us about that.
1: We have a young person who is in gainful employment. they work at one of the supermarkets in the city. they get paid they're above the national living wage, but they're not hugely above the national living wage so that they, they do okay they work full-time they have been looking. For independent living. Because they're in work, they're on the list for city housing, but they're unlikely to get it anytime soon. And so they've been looking for private rented accommodation. They found somewhere. It was a a small uh, studio apartment, but it was ideal. And the landlord wanted six months up front. So I reflect on that and I think, well, look at I'm lucky to be in a in in a quite a senior position in organization. I could not afford a six-month deposit. There are so many people looking at that flat that the landlord can set the bar, that's a real problem. You've got somebody that has been born in the city, lived in the city, works in the city, but is going to have to move out of the city. So I I think we've really got to think these things through, and it does break my heart when you get a young person that's ready to move on and start the next phase of their independent life, and they're held up by something which is frustrating because I want to say to the landlord, you know, who can afford six months? But from the landlord's point of view, he's got people that can afford six months. So, you know, it's a bit of a struggle,
0: to be honest. We've all heard heartwarming stories over the summer of 2020 about communities and individuals working together. Tell us some of the stories that you've experienced, Gavin, through your charity.
2: Well, I think one of the best, I've loved the food hubs. Ward by ward, I mean, they've really been impressive. And some of the food coming in is is equally impressive because I know Barmore Baptist Church takes regular uh, donations from the company that supplies Fortnum and Masons. And some of the stuff that, honestly, it's been brilliant. The food hubs, may they carry on, may they be well supported, may the food bank work well together. Why can't we have food banks located in supermarkets rather than them having to pick up from the supermarkets. Why can't people just turn up to supermarkets to pick up their food from there?
1: Yeah, I've been really struck that on both a a corporate level and an individual level, um, we have had people turning up to the YMCA with boxes full of provisions for our residents. Morrison's at Camborne, a delivery truck turned up and literally they emptied out box after box of stuff that we could distribute to our, our residents. But we've also had individuals that have come in and said, oh, you know, I've got too much of this. Please give it out amongst your residents. I've just been to the allotment. I've got far too many carrots. Here's a whole box of carrots. And it's been heartwarming to see that, you know, when we've been in a, in a national crisis People have really thought about their communities and I I sort of hope that we can maintain some of that whole community care um, as we we go forward uh, post-pandemic.
2: We had an example, Alison, the, the hotel in Cambridge that was refurbishing and closing down while refurbishing, And there was a lady called Gwen who was from a sustainability charity, and she was really fighting to get all that stuff out of the hotel and distributed. Some of these businesses, they talk a good game in terms of sustainability and environmental concerns and blessing the community with items. But when it came down to it, it wasn't so easy. It would just be easier for the contractor to rip things out rather than give things away. So she worked really hard on our behalf, and we've managed to repurpose a lot of that furniture. So the intention is there, but not quite. If you come up against commercial concerns, sometimes the commercial concerns outweigh the intention. So if we can get businesses truly to work towards community goals, then that's fantastic. And some do it brilliantly. Great to hear about Morrison's van rocking up. We need more of that kind of thing. And the actual intention within the these big supermarkets and big food distributors to do it, cannily and strategically, it'd be really important to carry that on.
0: Mm. Jonathan, how do you think we break the cycle, stop people falling into poverty and homelessness? Is there a way of harnessing that community care and that corporate collaboration in some way to make sure that people don't fall through the gaps and end up on the streets, end up homeless?
1: Look, I think this is the $64 million question. I don't think there's one thing that we can do that will magically cure street homelessness in the UK. Since 2010, there's been a 141% increase in street homelessness. And 2010 to 2020, if we, if, if we start at the beginning of 2020, has been an unbelievably prosperous period. So clearly there is something fundamentally that doesn't work there is something about a minimum income for everybody. But the minimum income is only workable if you can then afford housing with the minimum income. And I think that one of the things that is both fantastic about our city, but is also one of its downfalls, is it is somewhere people want to live. There are not enough houses. So fundamentally, we are not putting up enough houses and therefore, the market pushes the price up and up and up, and it pushes people out of the market who are on low incomes. That's a systemic issue that will take a massive change to address. And it is really difficult because we all love living in a city that has green within it and green outside it. We all relish that, and I think we're incredibly lucky that any summer day that you spend sitting in Jesus Green... You know, you can just see green around you. It's a fantastic environment. But at the same time, we we have to admit we have not got enough housing for the city that we are. Are we prepared to give up some of our our green belt in order to increase the the amount of housing that there is in the city? I think there's another thing, which is a lot of people who are on low incomes are on zero-hours contracts, which means that they are subject directly to the, the whim of the market And employers, it gives great flexibility. It means when you need capacity, you can have it. And when you don't need it, you're not paying for it, in essence. But I think the challenge with that is is that it's being used universally in roles that don't need to have zero-hours contracts. It should be for casual workers. And what it's become is for a worker. And I think that's a danger because it means that you can work, you know, week after week after week at 40 hours, and then on the Friday, your employer says to you, right, from next Monday, I don't need you for a month. And suddenly your income is gone. Yeah, I, th- I think those are some of our challenges, but they're systemic. They're not they're not quick fixes.
0: And Gavin, for people who are currently at risk of becoming homeless or are, are right on the brink of disaster, what are the sort of services and, and support networks and things that are in place already? Who do they turn to?
2: Well, I I think Cambridge is well covered with support teams and support organisations. And as a group of charities and community groups, we're trying to work as closely together as we can and just making the pathway straight and unkinking the kinks between people and and what they can obtain and, and the help they can obtain. I think there should be more
0: advertising about what helps out there because you don't know. Jacqueline Brewer, a user of the Arbury Community Fridge, told us about the difficulties of discovering the help on offer. It's not in shop windows or anything. You have to know somebody who you knows somebody to know that it's going on. But if people like were to have a note leaflet saying if you need help, ring this number or Maybe something up on a a window or at a shop or anything like that. It would help. The ease at which people in need can access help available to them is something we keep hearing about time and time again. That just needs to be improved. A volunteer at the Red Hen Project told us she'd like greater collaboration between the charities. There can always be more with charities working together and I think we all have a unique slant and I think if we come together and understand what each other's doing, that would be great. And also, there is no point us all repeating the same thing. If we understood what each other was doing and worked out how we could support each other, it would make a lot of sense. Gavin, what's your take?
2: The city has to work better together. We all have to work cooperatively, not worry about who gets the credit. And we have to just work cooperatively to make it really simple for people to just say, help. And somebody comes running or some some organization swings into action or some group of organizations swing into action. We're well resourced for that, but we, we can always do cooperation better.
0: Why do you think that there isn't more cooperation or hasn't been historically more cooperation? Well, we
2: haven't quite needed each other as much as we do now. It's again moving from the it would be nice to, to we have to. And we have to work together. We have to, because we have to complete the picture for people.
1: I think we also, we can't get away from the financial impact,
2: Mm.
1: which is that there is a price to partnership working which is somebody's got to hold the money who has that and who gives that up and particularly speaking from the point of view of a charity it's tough work to maintain the funding that we have and so sometimes it means that there's a penalty to partnership working and giving stuff up which is you then have to give up some of your funding the voluntary sector is is never funded in the long term it's always funded in the short term so that we're not able to put forecast and plan years in advance, we're literally doing it sort of a year or two at a time, and that, that's really challenging. So I think innately that makes you a little bit sort of, well, I've got to be, I've got to protect what we've got. We've been in Cambridge nearly 170 years. We want to be there for another 170 years. How do I, yeah. how do I do that? Yeah. So I think that that can be tough too. But definitely, I've seen over the course of 2020 a huge amount of partnership working of organisations that we've known of, but I've never really done any work with. And suddenly, we're doing some really good joint work to make sure that actually all of the people that we look after are looked after.
2: Yeah. We've been taking referrals of social workers for years and years. And I've had one lady, in fact, she just texted me the other day. We've got five different email addresses for her in 10 years. She's gone from organisation to organisation to organisation. When a new company has come into the city and bid for a contract... She's had to jump ship to go to that organisation, to that organisation. I mean, she's terrific. Every time I get a new email address from her, I'm like, oh, no, nice to see you again. Oh, OK, you're working for them now, are you? It's so bitty. It's so lacking vision. It's so lacking longer-term shape. And it's not good enough, I don't think. So as, as well as joining together better, joining the whole arc of the next 10 years or whatever. I mean, you know, Cambridge 2030 is about the next 10 years, isn't it? So we want to see that longer term. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And we want to see that thinking that brings the whole city together over a whole half a generation, don't we?
0: So just on that point, Gavin, if we don't make these changes, if we don't see this sort of systemic change and collaboration What do you see as the future, do you think, for those families who are currently living in poverty, are unemployed, are homeless, um, and their children?
2: Will we just be lumbering from crisis to crisis and family to family, household to household, rather than, you know, seeing people nurtured and growing better and, and growing better in community? While we've been booming, a lot of families and individuals and households have been busting I suppose and we'll see just more of that and we don't want to see more of that let's be clever we're a clever city apparently
0: let's be much more clever So with all the the wealth the knowledge the expertise of Cambridge knowing that we have a 28% growth in population coming in the next 10 or so years how would you address it sustainably what would you do What's the long-term solution, do you think?
1: So for me, look, we, we can't address this without more housing because fundamentally part of our problem is demand and that's just simple mechanics. We do not have enough supply to quench the demand and what that means is higher prices. Gavin's already made a really good point, which is we all know of developments in the city where all of the accommodation has been buy to leave and that is investors usually from outside the UK, investing their money and it just sits empty. And then they wait a few years for the price to increase and then they sell and make a profit. And it's a way of parking their money in safety outside of banks and all that sort of stuff. You know, somehow we've got to find a solution to that. You've got particularly community-minded developers such such as the Howard Group, Hill & Cut, and and they develop places that then aren't utilised fully. And that's just criminal. But fundamentally, as you say, we've got a huge spike in population coming and we haven't got anywhere to put them. And I think that what we're beginning to see, even in terms of our, our own staff, is people are beginning to live further and further and further away from the city. And there's a couple of things there. One is we want to reduce the environmental impact and these people are having to drive or catch buses into the city. But also, you know, you can't underestimate the added pressure of having an hour commute at either end of your your long working day. For me, it comes back to this supply and demand. We've got to do something about the supply somehow. Easier said than done, I know.
0: Thank you both for spending time talking to me today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Finally, we'll hear what Julie Spence, Lord
3: Lieutenant of Cambridgeshire, has to say. Oh, thanks, Alison. What's really clear is that homelessness is not a binary issue. Therefore, it will not have binary solutions. No one homeless person has the same story if you sit down and talk to them. There are many, many different reasons for why somebody ends up homeless. It's no good us sitting there thinking it will never happen to us. The data shows that we're all probably three pay packets away from actually being homeless. Now, I think Covid has probably shown as well that some of what we thought was definite money coming into our bank accounts every month is actually not so. The reality of that has probably struck home with greater clarity. We do need to make it much easier for organisations to work together whether that's public sector organisations or the charitable sector because we will only develop a better future for Cambridge people in Cambridge if we are working as a team. Working on our own, we will make a difference, but we will not make the difference that we could. Critical, I think, to all of this is around having a safety net. It's about having, yes, a home. It is about having employment or a steady income which allows you to live. It is about being able to put food on the table. We can work together to ensure that people have a framework around them so that actually they won't fall again and they can eventually rise up and they can thrive and they can again become the employees of the future, the employees this city needs. And we can ensure that they truly do become part of a thriving city and proud of being part of a thriving city. Thank you to everyone who contributed to this episode of Cambridge in Pursuit of Equality. Jonathan Martin, CEO of the YMCA Trinity. Gavin Howard, Director of the Howard Group and member of the BESOM in Cambridge charity. Christine Osborne, Organiser of the Community Fridge in Arbury; Jacqueline Brewer, User of the Community Fridge in Arbury, And the team at Conscious Communications for bringing this all together. If you'd like to be a contributor on a future series of Cambridge In Pursuit of Equality, please contact Alison Taylor at Conscious Communications on info at com. We believe the messages around reducing inequality in this episode are important, so please help us spread them far and wide by sharing this show with your network. Finally, if you want to be part of Cambridge 2030 or simply find out more, head over to cambridge2030.org and register your interest. Come on, Cambridge, it's really important because together we can make this city such a fantastic place to live and ensure that everybody has a home and a support network.